Back when I decided to preach on Psalm 23, our electionary psalm for today, I was planning to point out that although this psalm is far and away the most commonly selected scripture passage for memorial services and funerals, it isn't limited to times of death and tragedy, to times we need comfort. It is, in fact, a good psalm for all the days of our lives. It reminds us that God is our shepherd, the one who gives us life and all we need, the one who leads us to be restored in the beauty and peace of nature, and who beckons us to live a life shaped by an awareness that we belong to God, that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. As the psalmist says in Psalm 24, the very next psalm in the Old Testament, and in our call to worship this morning. All this fit nicely with the fact that tomorrow was Earth Day. Well, what a difference a day makes, or a week. First the news of the senseless bombings in Boston on Monday, and then the news of the explosion of a fertilizer plant in a small town in Texas on Wednesday night. One incident involves malevolence and intention, what we might call evil, while the other is a tragic accident. Both rattle us, reminding us that one moment you can think everything is just fine, and the next moment that sense of security and safety are gone like a puff of smoke. It's always been interesting to me how circumstances can break open a scripture passage for me in ways that hadn't occurred to me before. A Greek philosopher once said that no one enters the same stream twice. Had he been a preacher, he could have said the same thing about scripture. For starters, what do we do with, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, this week? The psalmist doesn't deny the existence of evil or its capacity to wreak havoc. More disturbing, perhaps, he doesn't say that God will not prevent it. Nor is he saying that I, that I will fear no evil because evil only happens to people who deserve it. We know that bad things happen to good people. The psalmist isn't using God as a magic amulet to ward off the dark side of life. The gift to us in this is that when you acknowledge that evil and pain and tragedy are real, then you don't have to pretend that there's something redemptive in them or that somehow everything about them will work out for the best, and you can simply mourn. You can grieve the real loss. This morning, our hearts are breaking for the people most directly impacted by last week's events. More challenging, perhaps, is the psalmist's stance in the face of real evil. No fear. Not because the FBI was already on the scene, not because enhanced surveillance methods allowed the CIA to identify the perpetrators more quickly and effectively, not because our military has new tools to exact vengeance expeditiously so that these people will never hurt anyone again, but rather because thou art with me, because God is with us. It's hard not to be afraid, isn't it? 
even when we hear the wisdom of Walter Brueggemann, who writes, it's God's companionship that transforms every situation. I suspect most of us know someone who would answer Brueggemann with, what good does God's companionship do us at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, or in the five or six blocks area, six-block area surrounding the West Fertilizer Company. These are the folks who might say, or at least think, something like, you can keep your God, give me an assault rifle, or an M1 Abrams tank, or a drone. But then, is that standing up to evil, or is it capitulating to it? Rabbi Kushner, who wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, writes, the 23rd Psalm is the answer to the question, how do you live in a dangerous, unpredictable, frightening world? That's asking a lot of a psalm. Certainly the psalm's familiarity and the psalmist's confidence and trust are comforting in a tranquilizing sort of a way. But there is something else here. Besides addressing fear, the psalm talks about revenge. If our first impulse in the face of evil is fear, our second impulse is vengeance. You spread a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, writes the psalmist. The psalmist doesn't ignore the cold, hard fact that there are people in the world who mean him harm. But as soon as the psalmist mentions these enemies and confesses his frankly petty desire to make them jealous by eating a sumptuous feast right in front of them while they look on with their mouths watering, he moves into a more important confession. He confesses, the goodness of God, and the bounty with which he has been blessed. The movement in the psalmist's thinking goes like this. I have enemies. Man, I would really love to rub their noses in the fact that God has blessed me. Wow, God has blessed me. And it's this last thought that carries the day. His impulse to take revenge is short-circuited, by the deep awareness of grace. The energy he would have spent on retribution is transformed into joyful thanksgiving. It's a different way of approaching a threat, isn't it? Pausing to reflect on God's grace before reacting in fear and revenge, it opens up the possibility of transformation, which might even include the enemy. After this week of media saturation, of terrifying images of mayhem, of tanks in the streets of Boston, of learning that the daughter of a church member was just one lagging running companion away from the finish line at the time the bombs exploded, I have two thoughts. First, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that I have the solution for dealing with terrorism, but I will say that we can see, looking backwards, that our reaction to terror over the last 12 years has been a disaster. 
the hard-hitting shock and awe response that was widely thought to be the tonic for getting over our fear and punishing our enemies did not work. And not only are we not any safer, it's possible that we've actually made things worse. And second, once again I find myself agreeing with Mr. Rogers. At the time of the Sandy Hook shootings, a quotation from his book, the Mr. Rogers Parenting Book, went viral, and people found it very comforting. This past week, it resurfaced. Fred Rogers said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. The helpers among us, as noted by a number of sources this week, are those who run toward a disaster scene and while the rest run away. The story in Acts that Jan read reminds us that as Jesus' disciples, we are called and empowered to be those helpers and healers, the ones who don't run away. The book of Acts chronicles the ministry of the apostles after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus, the healer, is gone. And in today's passage, it appears that all is lost for Tabitha, called Dorcas in Greek. She's dead. What possible healing could there be? And yet Peter doesn't run in the other direction. He goes toward the crisis. He travels to Joppa, goes into the room where the body lies, and performs a healing miracle, just like Jesus would have done. Peter picked up Jesus' healing ministry right where Jesus left off. And now it's our ministry. When I say we're called to run toward the disaster, I don't mean that all of us are supposed to function as first responders in an emergency. That takes special training, and it is a very particular calling, and I am very, very grateful for the courage and skill of the men and women who answer that call. But every one of us is called to run or at least walk toward helping toward healing the problems in this world. I'm thinking of the healing that recognizes that when Anglo-Americans commit even heinous crimes, they don't have to demonstrate that they're not inherently evil. And the healing that recognizes that we should not treat Muslims or Arabs or Chechens or people that are mistaken for any of the above any differently. I'm thinking of the healing that realizes that folking our military and police might on terrorism might mean diverting our resources from the world's daily and preventable tragedies, which kill many, many more people, like hunger, or lack of access to clean water, like the no longer slow heating up of the only planet any of us can call home. I'm thinking of the healing that allows us to accept that there are some things we can prevent and some things we can't, not without giving up more freedom than we want to give up or becoming people we don't want to become. The day or so after the Boston bombing, someone interviewed the folks planning the London Marathon, which is this weekend. Someone charged with security said that because Margaret Thatcher's funeral was last Wednesday, there was already loads of extra security in place in London. 
They would just continue that security, moving it over to the marathon, and everyone would be perfectly safe. A different person, someone with more expertise in terrorism, said there's no such thing as perfectly safe. He said, we could have the runners run the marathon around and around the track in Wembley Stadium and lock all the doors and not allow anyone to watch. But then the only ones who would win would be the terrorists. Frederick Buechner wrote, Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Maybe that's too much to expect at the drop of a hat, but it can be a goal. Something we can lean toward and help each other with. I got some help from a friend this week, a Presbyterian minister and writer who's an expat in Germany because of her husband's work, and who wrote this on Facebook a couple of days ago. Dear America, I love you. I am you. I've been glued to my computer and Facebook and NPR feed, and um, it's time to stand down. Take a big breath. Tanks in the middle of a city is um, PTSD. Breathe. Please, just breathe. Also, this is where it gets personal, all the preachers trying to figure out how to do Sunday? Breathe. The world still belongs to God. Just say that. You don't have to explain the Odyssey. You just have to be love. God's love. God's eternal presence in this and the 30-year war in Europe and, well, that list is going to get very long. Things have been messed up for a long time and still somehow it is for us to proclaim to the exiles in Babylon This moment is not the whole story. God is still at work. Seriously, it's going to be okay. Hugs. So, my friends, I end where we began. The world still belongs to God. God is still at work. The Lord is our shepherd. Thanks be to God. Amen.